Well, greetings. Good to see you today. Glad for a great time to spend together in the Word of God. A young man was scheduled to speak in a church in uh, a southern city, and he chose as his text, Thou shalt not steal. Well, the next morning he happened to get on a bus in that city and handed the bus driver the fare, and the bus driver gave him back his change, and he went to the back of the bus and checked his change and discovered that the bus driver had given him too much money, a dime too much. Well, he thought, the bus company makes a lot of money. They don't, I don't have to worry about them. They're rich. But then he thought, that would not be good. I cannot do that. I cannot really keep this money. It's not mine. So he went to the front of the bus and said to the bus driver, uh, you gave me too much change. And the bus driver said, I know. I gave you a dime too much on purpose. He said, you see, I know you preached yesterday, and I know what you preached on. And so uh, I thought I would give you a dime extra change and just see what you would do. And he said, I have learned also today that uh, I can trust you. And uh, if I hear you preaching, I know I can trust your preaching. Well, the young man gave the money back and went and sat down. But when he got off the bus, he went over to a, a light pole and he said, oh, God, just think. I almost gave up that man for 10 cents. What a tragedy if I had turned a man from God for 10 cents. Well, the leader's life necessitates integrity for a corporate testimony, even in the smallest matters. So what I want you to do is note with me five calls, five very important calls. Call for wisdom. Now, what if the leadership comes across a problem or decision and doesn't know what to do? Even kings have had this situation. In fact, uh, you remember the book of Esther. King Ahasuerus wanted, was having a great feast of seven days. And he decided he would have his beautiful queen show off. And so he called for her to come to be exhibited before all the people. And the queen refused. He was furious. So he called in wise men who understood the times. That's important to think to understand the times in which we live. And we need to require that others of leaders that they, if we're going to win the loss and guide God's people. God's word remains the same in doctrine, but how we relate it needs to understand how it is received. One of God's enablements is to ask God for help of those who are in the know. King David, remember him? Sure you do. Scripture says that when King David had a major decision to make, he called the sons of Issachar, who had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. That's 2 Chronicles 12, 32. Men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Men who had expert knowledge of the times and what was best for Israel to do. These leaders knew the right time to do what needed to be done. These men understood the right thing for Israel to do at the right time. Men who understood the temper of times and knew the best course of Israel to take. They understood the times and knew what Israel should do. These excelled in moral and political prudence and wisdom. So as to know what in any season of emergency, the particular posture of affairs required to be done. Look around you and gather godly men. None of us are islands to ourselves. Today, there are godly men and women who have an understanding of the times to know what we need to do like Israel needed to understand the times. 
The giver of wisdom is God. We need to begin our quest with prayer. James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. We come to him, for, for from him alone counsel and guidance proceed. By his spirit he instructs men. Means of gaining wisdom are within men's reach. Oh, there are a lot of natural qualifications that God gives us. He gives us observation, conversation with the learned, the wise, the experienced, reading, practical conduct. All these means are more, the more means that God gives us for acquiring wisdom. I noticed a news item the other day and I couldn't resist it. The White House has a new press secretary, a young lady by the name of Kaylee. And uh, I did not know that she was a Christian. I knew nothing about her, except she was the White House press secretary. But in an interview, she said that um, she had been influenced greatly by Ravi Zacharias. And you recall that just a few weeks ago, Ravi Zacharias went to be with the Lord. Well, it so happened that Kaylee studied at Oxford University. And while she was there, surrounded by distinguished atheist scholars, she met and got acquainted and spent time with Ravi Zacharias. She said to have someone from an academic place as an apologist could equip you with those arguments where you didn't have to check your brain at the door when you became a Christian where there is intellectual foundation for everything we believe. She said he put a philosophical academic rationale for the heart that I had for Christ and gave me the ability to go to Oxford. Zacharias spent the better part of his life defending the faith by answering questions of origins, morality, and ultimate destiny, and the training of others to do the same. He was helping thinkers to believe and believers to think. God has all kinds of means for wisdom to us to be gain, for us to gain wisdom. The wise practical life holds a great sphere of wisdom. Issachar had understanding of the times. True wisdom does not only lie in understanding past situations, but also the needs and the issues of our day to day. Historical, scientific, and speculative knowledge are all good. Knowledge properly understood is wisdom. It was what Israel ought to do at that time, it was what the wise men of this tribe were competent to decide. There can be no doubt that these men had reference to political wisdom, military promptness, and practical habits. These men recognized in David a faculty for ruling strongly, justly, and religiously. And they were qualified to give testimony in their devotion to the son of Jesse in the installation of the new king. The guiding wisdom we seek today teaches us that church wellness in a thriving local church is marked by a heartbeat for reaching a community through evangelism, and engaging interaction and promoting a good reputation. We, we are made for action. Ministry takes work and purpose of heart to qualify for godly practical life. Embracing wisdom undergirds us for the duties of our God-given ministry abilities. This support is available to each of us. Believe it, ask God for it. We can joyfully Expect that spelling out the gospel of Christ, meeting new people, and maintaining a life that illustrates what we say and believe will go a long way in obtaining church wellness. Among other things, 
Paul says, study, be diligent to show yourself approved to God, a workman that needeth to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Every gift, ability, talent, opportunity, and power should be laid on the altar. Our Heavenly Father is the one who gives it, and he orchestrates it through us to use it. It's advantageous to know our world and to aggressively seek to know the needs of those to whom we minister. Never procrastinate to follow biblical ministry patterns which will both meet the present needs, demands, and desired developments. Choose the time for action which may prove most efficient, efficient and wise. There are many opportunities to consider biblical ministry action that fits into God's plan for our day. Being proficient with computers is one of them. The Lord raises up men and women in every age like you who are God-gifted to serve the Savior in full loyalty and character for him. Church wellness in a thriving local church is marked by the heartbeat for reaching its community through evangelism, engaging, engaging interaction, and promoting a good reputation. The second call is a call to communication. I see the pattern in the book of Philippians. This church had a very interesting beginning. It actually began with the ladies' Bible study. And then it was uh, characterized by a young lady who was demon-possessed, and the demons were cast out. And this infuriated her owners, her operators, and that led to an unlawful imprisonment. However, after a time of singing and prayer, there was an earthquake, and the climatic uh, salvation, conversion of the prison warden and his family. That's quite a start for a local church. Most of our churches have not started that way. They've started much, much milder than that. Sometime later, Paul wrote back to this church from another prison experience. Building a church, the people of God may have a few bumps along the way. In fact, they may want to make some big changes. There are groups that decide that they want to do always what we ever did from the beginning. We must never change. Well, let's put it this way. We must never change our theology. Our doctrine must stand firm. But there are methods and ideas that can change in the way we operate. Several years ago, I was called to pastor a church of around 100 people that was the result of a church split. The larger church had been taken over by an outside parachurch organization. Immediately, the new church realized that they had to write a strong constitution so that could never happen again. It was necessary to face some issues. And so the men got together with their Bibles and church constitutions and wrote a brand new one. And they kept searching and researching until finally they had the document they wanted. Well, Paul gives ingredients for the question of corporate testimony and also the advancement of the local church. And he gives it to us many times throughout his epistles. But there's this call to communication that we must never forget. But then there's the call for good reputation. Think about this. I like this statement. I don't know who said it, but a good reputation grows up. A bad reputation shoots up. It takes time and effort for a good reputation to grow. But bad, reputa bad reputations swiftly surround the world. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, get this. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. He speaks about their adversaries. Whenever you want to speak of salvation and the hope of, and we have in Jesus Christ, there will be those who will be adversaries. But we have to think of worthy conduct. We know that church splits and immoral leadership destroy a church's reputation. However, there are other considerations. The word only connects Paul's statement that the assurance that he has will, he will be given his freedom. And of course, the reason he needs his freedom is to minister to them so that he might conduct themselves worthy of the gospel. The word worthy here, it really means like this, to walk as citizens of the gospel. Lives congruent with the gospel. Philippi was a, a, a proud of being a Roman colony. It offered them the honor and the privilege of Roman citizenship. They were to live as a credit to Rome. But we as Christians should live as a credit to Christ, not Caesar, for model behavior. Our entire way should be a life, a credit to the gospel. The old adage says, actions speak louder than words. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we, also, we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Dr. Warren Wearsby tells a great story that I think is so good here. He tells about a pious church member who really thought himself to be a great Christian. And so one day he was visiting the junior department of their Sunday school, and the superintendent asked him if he would say a few words. So he stood pompously before them and uh, spoke to the children. He said, why do you think people call me a Christian? There was an embarrassing silence. Then a small voice in the back of the room said, because they don't know you? Wow, that is a shocker. I, I don't know what I would have said if I'd been standing there by the man. But they, we have to be worthy of, we have to live worthy conduct. And then there's a willing cooperation. In chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Now notice who he mentions, Paul, Timothy, saints, and the bishops and deacons. The whole issue here has to do with working together. Stand fast in one spirit. He says down in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or, see, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, willing cooperation. Recently, we've heard many slogans of togetherness. And in the world's eyes, it seems to be an important thing today in the situation that we're dealing with in our society. Now, the result of all this is a winning character. The character is what we're after here. Chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul says that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Looking at the world today, we can honestly say, yes, it's crooked and perverse. In this world, the church people are to stand out because hopefully they behave differently. The results of the believers following Paul's teaching would manifest 
itself in unity. The Greek word blameless has the idea of a deserving censure free from fault or defect. Harmless in the Greek text has the idea of unmixed or unadulterated. It was used of wine without water or metal without alloy. It means guileless. Remember what Jesus said about Nathaniel? Behold an Israelite in whom is no guile. Sons are more properly children here. So he's not talking about little boys. He's talking about children of God. And he says without rebuke. The idea we are to be without blemish, faultless, unblameable. Paul exhorted them to a life of character. How others see us should stand out in godly character. Edgar Guest wrote something I thought was so good. He said, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. The best of all preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may understand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. There is an old Malayan proverb that says it's better to die with a good name than to live with a bad one. People may doubt what you say, but they'll always believe what you do. We want to be sure that we have credibility in our lives, our reputation. The fourth call is a call to engaging interaction. I like this. We do well to take on the, on the a mindset and attitude of uh, the Apostle Paul. I'm sure you've met people who thought they were mature. Maybe in a discussion you've said, uh, what do you consider to be maturity? And maybe someone has said, well, I believe I am mature. And uh, they, we would use the word perfect. No one says, well, I'm perfect. But we like to use the word perfect. But someone said, if you are really are perfect and mature, you will not realize that you are perfect and mature. I like that. No matter how far you've come, no matter how far we've gone down the road, there's still more time to grow. I've had the privilege of serving in the ministry now for 62 years. And as I look back on these years, I know I have much time, much more to learn and more to grow. And I want to grow and grow and grow until I go. Well, co corporate testimony shines from a mature walk of all participants. I like what Paul says in chapter 3 and verse 15 of Philippians. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. In, in his time, he will show you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. Being of the same mind reminds me of a church board that I served with many years ago and on that occasion I happened to be the chairman of the group and we were discussing a certain issue. Now we had a policy with that board that major decisions had to be served, had to be voted on in unison. Smaller things we could be divided on but when it came to major issues, main issues, they had to be unanimous and we agreed on that. 
And this one night we were discussing and discussing and I thought to myself, we're not gonna solve this tonight and I'm not really worried about it, we'll come back. And uh, one of the men sitting next to me said, uh, you know, pastor, he just said something over there that just might be the solution. I said, well, let's find out. So the discussion went on and wasn't long before we had the solution and it was voted on unanimously. That's because these were men who have engaging interaction. They listened to each other. They discussed carefully. Paul exhorts the Philippian saints who are spiritually mature to consider there's always room for more spiritual growth. I want you to look at verse 16 here. Verse 16, he says, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. The spiritual maturity spoken of here is not a state of sinlessness or flawlessness, but one of completeness, a well-rounded Christian character. We might say the opposite of spiritual infancy. But then corporate testimony is seen in the master's walk of leadership. <clears throat> he said over in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved and long-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved, be united, joyful, and in prayer. It interests me that Paul speaks of his love for the people. Don't ever get away from the fact that Paul loved those he served. Uh, sometimes he speaks very bluntly and very strongly. But you look at the, at the epistles of Paul and you see love. In fact, in this verse, passage alone, in chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 8, he uses the word brethren. Twice out of the times he uses beloved, and then he uses beloved brethren. He says they were more precious than jewels, diamonds, pearls to him. This is the kind of love we should have. A willingness to die for our people. Paul was willing to die for them. Oftentimes I talk to young pastors, and I believe the two things that pastors must do. I don't believe this has ever changed. But we should love our people and teach them the word of God. One time my wife was and I were discussing a certain pastor that we had heard. And she said, you know, I don't get any sense from him that he really cares for his people. Now she wasn't judging him, but she was just making an observation that I had seen. But our people need to know that we love them and then teach them the word. Now, in this verse, he says, stand fast in the Lord. Standing fast, okay, now, then there are three imperatives. In chapter, verses two and three, living in harmony with one another. Verses four through seven, rejoicing in all occasions. And in verses eight and nine, developing the quality of sweet reasonableness. Here it's clear. So these three imperatives in the Greek text explain to stand firm, stand firm thus, he says, living in harmony with one another, rejoicing in all occasions, developing the quality of sweet reasonableness. Very clear. Corporate testimony calls for the mannerly walk of all believers. He writes in verse two of chapter four, I implore Euodia and I employ Syntyche to be of the same mind. <clears throat> Does it interest you that Paul knew these people by name? You say, well, sure, he only had a few people. Well, now wait a minute, remember all the churches he went to? Remember all the churches he started? Remember all the people that came to know Christ as Savior? But here were two that he knew by name 
because he was a pastor. Now over in John chapter 10, we have a very similar thought with the, the, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ when he speaks of the, of the door and the shepherd. And he says in verse uh, 3 of John 10, to him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The Apostle Paul sends a personal word to two believers in the Philippian church. These two women of prominence, leadership, and capability, they were good ladies. They had some kind of a difficulty between the two of them. But he speaks to them very gently, and he implores them. I like that word. I beseech you. I beg you. But the word euodia, that's the first one mentioned here, I beseech euodia, means a prosperous journey. Uh, this is one who you could say had arrived. She had gotten somewhere in life. She was an important person. Syntyche means a pleasant acquaintance, a happy chance, a good luck. It indicates that she was one of the more pleasant, affable people who, what we would call today good mixers. She was one of those valuable people in the local church who are quick to meet new visitors and new strangers that come. But disagreement weakened the church. Disagreement weakened the power of the people of God to influence the world around them. So what does he say? He says, I beseech you, I exhort you, I beg you, please. He sends this individual message out to each one. I want you to notice the, the humility, the loving kindness. He says, please to them. He begs them to become reconciled. Rather than use his apostolic authority, he beseeches in meekness and humility, begging them to be of the same mind in the Lord. He is saying, be mannerly to each other. The world is watching. Good thought there, isn't it? Be mannerly to each other. The world is watching. Paul does not reveal the source of his tension. He doesn't say who told him this, but somebody has spoken up. He exhorts them to be of one mind. Christians are to be reconciled to God. And as I look at this passage, I, I see that these women were prepared by what he said earlier in the book. In chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, he exhorts the Philippian saints to stand fast in one spirit. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, he exhorts them in all loneliness of mind to each esteem other better than themselves and to be like-minded. In, ch in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, <clears throat> he brings their attention to the humility of Jesus Christ. And then also in chapter 2, verse 19 to 31, he speaks of the selflessness of both Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, notice verse 3 of chapter 4. And urge you also. I like it. It starts with and. Now, that's a word we just kind of throw in sometimes, but it has meaning here. I urge you also, true companion, whoever that is, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. We don't know who it is. But Paul didn't isolate himself. There are many people who say, well, I, I can do it on my own. I don't need anybody's help. Uh, if we are wise, we get the advice of other people. And he was willing to turn to someone else, and he had someone else here he could talk to. He doesn't just leave them there and uh, leave them up to their own decision, but he brought in somebody. And I see the word and tying together, assuming the granting of the request that was just made, 
and he's going to pursue even more. <clears throat> the word entreat again implies a request that has back of it the authority of the apostle. When dealing with these two saints who were out of fellowship with each other because of some difference, therefore out of fellowship with the Lord, Paul uses a very tender word, pleading with them in all humility to deal very carefully with a saint out of fellowship with his Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Galatians 6, 1 puts it this way. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Notice that. When Paul makes request in verse 3, he says, I entreat thee also, yoke fellow. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel. He uses his authority in speaking to that yoke fellow or that companion. So it's either true yoke fellow or true companion. And Paul is looking to him as a, a, a soldier who's taking an order. He says, now you have a job to do to bring these women together. So there has to be a, a sense of uh, corporate testimony working together. Now the fifth call, and this is vital, the fifth call is the call for evangelism. Back in chapter one are some verses that I have loved for a long time. In fact, chapter one, there's verses here that have uh, explained a lot of things about ministry to me. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then in every way, whether in pretense, pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Notice, in verse 15, he says, preach. In verse 16, he says, preach. In verse 17, he said, preached. Not everyone's going to be friendly toward you when you preach the gospel. There are those who will not accept it. What about the methods of some? As a young believer... And as a young pastor, really, and I studied this the first time, I was really surprised that there were those who would oppose the Apostle Paul. I really had a difficulty in my mind that there would actually be believers that would have the wrong motives in giving the gospel to make it hard on Paul. The church was divided. Some preached Christ sincerely. They wanted people to be saved. Some preached Christ insincerely, wanting to make the, make the situation difficult for Paul. Can you believe that they were using the gospel to further their own selfish purposes? Perhaps they belonged to a legalistic wing of the church that opposed Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and his emphasis on the grace of God as opposed to obedience to the Jewish law. Envy and strife go together. We have here corporate testimony that should encourage us to stick to the basics of preaching the word and not use our pulpit to criticize what others are doing. It's interesting to note that in verse 16, King James says the word contention. The new King James uses the word selfish ambition. This word means to canvas for office, uh, to get people to support you. The aim of these critics was to promote themselves and win a following of their own instead of asking, have you trusted in Christ? They asked, whose side are you on, ours or Paul? Our mission is not religious politics. I had a friend by the name of Luther Cook, long gone to be with the Lord. He was a converted musician. He played in the New York Philharmonic, 
And uh, a young lady in a restaurant one day to him said, Mr. Are you born again? It so bothered him, he went down the street and went to a church and went into the office and said, a girl told me, asked me if I was born again. What does it mean to be born again? And someone in that church explained to him what it meant to be born again. And that day he placed his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But from that day until the day he died, everybody he met, he would say, are you born again? If he were to meet you, he would say, are you born again? Well, I had him for meetings in my first church. The only time I was ever able to because he died shortly thereafter. But as he was doing this and I would take him to meet people and he would always say, well, nice to meet you, John. Are you born again? And one of the church people said, you know, I really don't like your approach. I don't like your approach of just putting people on the spot and saying, are you born again? And Luther was a good man, a gracious man. And he looked at the person and said, well, tell me, what is your method? And this person said, well, I, I really don't have one. And Luther's response, response was, I prefer the method I use rather than the method you don't use. But he also painted scripture on his car. He had verses all over his car, plan of salvation. Many years ago, John Mattingly, an IFCA pastor, was in his 70s and 80s. He amazed me. He was a great big guy. He had been a bouncer for the Mickey, uh, Al Capone in, in Cicero in the early days. But he accepted Christ as Savior in Cicero Bible Church, and uh, the Lord used him. He put him in the ministry out in Colorado and on the West Coast. And in his 70s and 80s, when he was no longer pastoring, he would carry with him a little suitcase with a slide projector. Uh, not a handy thing like our computers today, but a little slide projector with 35 millimeter slides. And he had what he called his good news presentation. And the presentation was basically to give people the gospel. And he went door to door. He told me how he did it. He would go door to door and say, I have a good news presentation I'd like to give to you if you could let me set up my slides. And many times he would do it. And many times he had the joy of leading people to Christ. But he would start his slides with beautiful pictures of the western United States. Uh, I forget some of the areas he had were gorgeous in Colorado. But then he would move very quickly to the issue of sin and salvation. He did it. Luther Cook did it. Doug Anderson is a friend of mine that I've known for many, many years. And he was an outstanding realtor in the state of Michigan. And he had a practice. I went with him on a listing one time when I was visiting him. And he always carried his, his satchel with him, his presentation book. And he would sit down with people and say, now I want to, I'd like to list your home to sell it. And he would go through all the things and he would turn the pages in his book. And then we get to a certain page and he said, now the most important thing in my life is I know Jesus Christ as my personal savior. And then he would give them the gospel, explain the gospel, flip over the pages and show the gospel. He did this time after time with everyone he saw, everyone he listed and everyone he sold. You say, well, how many people did he defend? I don't know. I do know that he was number one in the state for many years. And one time he had a contest in the office where he worked and there were 35 salesmen and he took them on, dug against 35 others, and he beat them. And with everyone he talked to, he gave the plan of salvation. He did it. Jim Brown's another friend of mine. Jim Brown was a pastor. He was a missionary in Alaska. He was a uh, mission, home missionary. He served the biblical ministers worldwide. 
But as years went on, he found that he is going around the country preaching and starting a church was not so easy. And so he started going to a coffee shop. He'd go to Caribou, he'd go to Starbucks, and he would just sit there. He would go dressed casually and sit there and read, and people would come along. And over the years, he was, he was usually mentoring about 15 to 20 men at the same time. He would do this very faithfully. One fellow went off to seminary, another one went to the mission field. He had a great ministry. And these were college students. These were university students, not from a Christian university. Well, today he's retired. And I just read his email the other day. Bless his heart, he's still at it. Well, he can't go to the coffee shops like he used to because it just isn't as easy to do as before. So what he's been doing, he's been walking the neighborhood where he lives now in South Carolina. And as he walks the neighborhood, he walked up, prays for the people in every house, <clears throat> every home. Lord, I don't even know who they are, but I know Christ died for these people. And uh, I would ask you to give opportunity for someone to give them the gospel. And that's what he's doing with his time today. Well, he did it. Now, I want you to take a piece of paper and write something down. I'm going to give you something to write down real quickly. I want you to write down, first of all, two wild animals. Okay? Two colors. Two flowers. Two pieces of furniture. And two carpenter's tools. Do you know that the majority of people will write down lion and tiger, red and blue, rose and violet, chair and table, and hammer and saw? Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what it has to do with. Human nature is the, sin, is the same all over. Not only is it the same all over, but there's likenesses that are so similar. And the worst one of all is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinners and need a savior. No matter the method, preach Christ everywhere. Now listen carefully. I'm glad we're back today. I want to tell you about God. God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. And Jesus came to earth to die for our sins, and he raised from the grave so that we can, can, be, can have eternal life and live with him forever in heaven. It's a great thing to talk about because God is the one who will set you free from sin. And sin is the bad stuff we do, and the bad stuff we think, and the bad stuff we say, and the bad stuff we do, and the bad stuff we say, like lying and not being truthful. The motive of Paul, his aim was to glorify Christ, and he encouraged people to follow him. Like the, the Lord Jesus, Paul was not concerned for his own interest as long as the gospel was proclaimed. We do well to look at our critics as another opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. Philippians 1.17 tells us the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. That's what his purpose was. But the gospel was being preached. And we rejoice, what rejoiced Paul's heart is that the gospel was being preached. Back in the 18th century, there were two evangelists. One was called John Wesley and the other George Whitfield. These men disagreed tremendously on doctrinal issues. Both of them preached to thousands and both of them had many, many, many multitudes come to Christ. And they differed there, there with, with each other in, in some matters. 
but there was no opposition in ministry. Someone asked Wesley one time if he expected to see Whitfield in heaven. The evangelist said, I do not. Then do you think Whitfield is, a, is do, you, do you not think Whitfield is a converted man? Of course he's a converted man, Wesley said. But I do not expect to see him in heaven because he will be so close to the throne of God and I so far away I will not be able to see him. Well, they differed, but they agreed on this one thing. The message we have is primary, though, folks. <clears throat> the gospel was not confirmed because Paul was confined. Messengers of God cannot and should not expect everybody to be friendly. Paul's response is exceptional. He did not give in to self-pity or even resentment. What mattered most is that Christ was preached. Now, chapter 1, verse 13 of Philippians says, So that it has come evident to the whole palace guard or praetorian guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. It interests me. There's two groups that he ministered to. The praetorian guard or the palace guard and all the rest. Now that refers to all the soldiers that came his way. And you know, here we are in in this present time when in the past months, uh, the COVID-19 virus has caused so much heartache. Now many of our churches have found new ways. And it's been thrilling to me to see how many of our churches have made use of the internet. (coughs) Pardon me. They've taken opportunity and used use the internet. And one pastor told me they had thousands increased uh, who've been paying, listened to the gospel. Well, these soldiers spoke to <clears throat> these soldiers that Paul spoke of were also responsible to guard prisoners who appealed to Caesar. They were like Paul. It was an honor to be in the guards. Paul was stationed in a house under guard and guarded 24 hours a day. But he took opportunity to witness to the guards. One writer said there were originally 10,000 of these specially picked soldiers concentrated in Rome by Tiberius. They had, picked double, they had double pay and special privileges and became so powerful the emperors had to court favor. Paul had the joy of leading them to the Savior. The soldier with whom he was chained that day, might have been Nero's bodyguard yesterday. His comrade who lived next relieved, <clears throat> who next relieved that guard, might have been one of the execute, ex, executioners of Octavio, Nero's wife. <clears throat> and he might have carried her head to Nero's mistress a few weeks ago, a few weeks before. And then he says, not only the Praetorian Guard, but to all the rest, everyone else. That included everyone that Paul had a chance of ministering to. He wanted to preach the gospel and give them the truth of God. Sometimes the the quest for corporate testimony seems to be in chains. Your church seems unable to reach out. Maybe a megachurch is moving into your community and your small community. And maybe your church feels very smothered because of the chains of a false cult nearby. Chains did not stop the Apostle Paul. Encourage each other to tell the good news to one and anyone. God uses his word.
My father spoke to me very passionately before, before he went to heaven. He said, son, whatever you do, do not cease to give the invitation for people to be saved. For 62 years, he had proclaimed the gospel and invited people to respond to the invitation of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and many accepted that invitation. We had a dear brother here in the IFCA evangelist, Joe Arnett, and I heard him give a seminar one time on how best to give an invitation. And I watched him in action. I saw him when the message was preached very strongly by a person, and Joe got up to give the invitation, and it was velvet, it was beautiful. It was such a pleasing time of, of a, it wasn't a challenging, horrible time. It was just a plea of a man of God inviting people to the Savior. Well, I think of Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. And some men come slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, we have a friend who pastors a small church in suburban Chicago. His name is Richard Wall. He has written a tract, and his daughter has helped him, I believe, in the design and the printing. And I asked him for a copy of this. In fact, I have several of these now. Every Sunday morning, he goes over this with his people. Sunday morning service, they have a training session in how to witness, how to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll say, well, we, we, we have this message because all have sinned. And what does Romans 3.23 says? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all stand condemned for our sin. And because of sin, sin separates us from God. <clears throat> Your iniquities have separated you from God. God hates sin and will judge mankind for sin. <clears throat> the privilege is that all of us need a savior. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. God so loved us that he sent his son to die for our sin. And then as we realize all of this, you must place your faith in Christ. All those who believe him, he gives the right to become the children of God, even to them who believe on his name. Dear friend, you can give the gospel. You can use it. You can talk to other people. The guiding wisdom we seek today teaches us that church wellness in a thriving local church is marked by a heartbeat for reaching its community through evangelism, engaging interaction, and promoting a good reputation. May you teach your church by example and word to live out the question of corporate testimony. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father, for the word of God. We thank you for the example and the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Help us to apply it, to have churches that are on fire for you, who are ex example to the others, who are telling the gospel to others, and they're being godly in their daily walk. We thank you for this privilege and this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.